you've got to really submit to other people's way of seeing things or a common way of seeing things or specific ways of seeing things. And I think that makes a good salesperson. Business of Architecture, episode 199. Hello, I'm Enoch Sears, and this is the podcast for architects, where you'll discover tips, strategies, and secrets for running a profitable and impactful architecture practice. I'd like to invite you to discover how to double your architecture firm income and create your dream practice of freedom and impact by downloading my free four-part architecture firm profit map. As a podcast listener, you can get instant access by going to freearchitectgift.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by AIA Advantage partner BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software designed specifically for architects. It helps you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. So whether you're working remotely or on-site, ArchiOffice allows you to monitor the status of your projects and tasks and send out invoices in an accurate and timely manner. Get your fully functional 15-day trial of ArchiOffice by going to businessofarchitecture.com forward slash demo. Hello and welcome. My name is Ryan Willard and I'm here with the Business of Architecture in the UK and I'm sitting with my good friend Sean McAllister who is the co-founder and director of Sean and Stephen, which is a unique practice based here in East London. And they worked on an amazing set of diverse projects from street frontage, landscaping, civic work, public artworks to exhibition designs working with clients like the Museum of London and I've also got a good healthy stream of private residential um, projects and you've also recently just won um, the Crisp Street Exchange project in Popular which is a shared co-working affordable desk space and um, it's a great pleasure to be able to speak with you Sean. And I'd just like to know, what, what was it? How did, you, how did you guys get started? Thanks, Ryan. Um, Stephen Mackey and I... Stephen Mackey's not here at the minute. Stephen Mackey and I studied together in Dundee University. I come from Belfast, but I came over, and, and Stephen's from Edinburgh. And we got on well, you know, we had a bit of a drinking culture, but we shared a lot of aesthetics and, you know, extracurricular architectural study interests and so we came down to London worked for a few years separately and then realized that we started to, we wanted to work together we tried our hand at um, at a competition mm. um, that was publicly uh, it was open to the public um, and it was uh, an invitation to tender for some work up in Walthamstow which is an area in the northeast of London and the work was to um, it was to design shop fronts and build the shop fronts for about, I can't remember, but maybe about like 20 shops um, and you'd be given a handful of them amongst other designers. So yeah, uh, it came at an opportune time where both Stephen and I were let off by our respective um, <laughs> <laughs> our respective employers for one reason or another. And this is often the best way to start a practice. I think it's momentum. You need <laughs> you need momentum for sure. Uh, it's well, it's hard to dedicate the time to um, thinking about a whole new entity. You know, at the end of the day, mm. after work, you kind of need to clear the deck sometimes. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what. Um, if we didn't win that competition, we might have tried other competitions. But we won that competition, and while it wasn't a major money spinner in any respect. 
we lost a lot of money, you know, in, in terms of time. Mm. But it gave us the portfolio to then seek more work. And so from very humble beginnings, um, we, we got a £50,000 contract after that based on the quality of um of of our design work and uh and the management of the clients. And when was this? This was 2013. Right. 2012 we won the competition and then 2013 we were delivering the competition uh the the, the projects the shop fronts there was a a Chinese takeaway restaurant uh, where we had communication issues but we had to work with um visuals quite a lot with them and then uh um, a, a youth space uh, which is come daycare centre that's up in Walthamstow and they yeah. just had no street frontage at all it was an old um, a, an old building that had there was nowhere to advertise anything or to say come in no welcoming sign so our, our job was to help them um, have have an image on the street without it being kitsch yeah uh, and how did you find that transition from going from like working in a corporate practice to suddenly being out there delivering, you know, quite a public piece of work viewing, with mm. you and uh, Stephen? How what was the sort of transition that you went through, like in, in like just learning to deal with the mechanics of running a business and dealing with all the unknowns of where the next new, mm. where the next new bits of work were going to come from? And how did you how what kind of strategies did you employ or was it sort of? Yeah, no, it, good question. The, it, when I think back, if I think back quickly, it just feels like we you know, we ended one <laughs> employment and then moved on mm. to working for our own practice, but that wasn't the case, really. Um, while we were trying to find more and more work, Stephen and I were both trying to earn money elsewhere, and that happened for about, maybe for about eight months, we were seeking... I worked as a um, a gallery technician in an art gallery uh, on a very informal basis, but basically it was, I was um, screwing things into asbestos for for acrobats to hang off or to hang up artworks or screwing projectors, as any uh, gallery technician knows best how to do. Yeah, and so I'd be I'd be filling my time with the competitions that we win, um, that we won, and the work that came in. And then the other time would be on this. But in in reality, we were having these fundamental conversations uh, and sometimes arguments between us about like how do, what constitutes getting paid whenever you earn the money and you're in control of the contract. What con- is it a for every hour that you work, you should give yourself a set hourly rate. But what if you've not calculated how many hours it takes to carry out that design work? Mm. We also had to manage. Not only a client who was giving the money for these, for the, for example, the Chinese takeaway, but also we had to manage the people inside the Chinese takeaway who, whose English was non-existent. Um, so there, there was a sort of a triangle. Just to sort of explain for people who may, may be listening in, in the states, for example, what these project, what these redevelopment projects are. Yeah, quite right. Um, there has been a bit of a swell of support. Um, especially in London, but I'm sure in other cities and towns where the high street has been identified as a as a, an asset to towns, mm. where hubs, um, it's a hub of thriving commerce, of footfall, of the day-to-day life of any town or city. So um, central governments and local 
um, authorities have been finding funding to and finding ways to spend money to improve uh, the experience of being in the high street. That might be about better signage, about better lighting, better Got pavements, it. better street fronts. And so one of the outputs of this, and there are many, one of them is putting up competitions for designers of of many designers to design individual shop fronts so that you don't get big swathes of um, singular languaged um, boulevards right. where the, the, you know, the, the sort of the neg- the breakdown of a street isn't um, homogenized too much because yep, yep. we're trying to protect that as well. We're trying, trying to protect the individuality of each shop owner. Yeah. Um, however, they, you know, often that's not a care for the shop owner, which is a funny contradiction. Yeah. I suppose those kind of projects as well. It's quite. It's in the public domain, so it's quite. Yeah, um, it's very much so. You get a lot of um, conversation when you're on the street front up a ladder, screwing up a sign that you had CNC cut and you've been painting for the last few days for pittance, um, and you'll you'll have every Tom, Dick, and Harry come along, and give their two cents on the typeface you use, the colours, whether it should have been gloss or satin, mm. paint, you know, this sort of thing, or or if you're using vinyls or changing a door or this sort of thing. You'll get um you'll get a lot of instant polling. <laughs> uh yeah. And it it's it seems to never be in one direction. Very diverse. Mm. Uh, and I think it's worth noting that in a place like Walthamstow there there is a very diverse uh, community there it isn't very difficult to say there's one uh, there's a majority population or demographic there and so not only that but I think it's true in terms of um, like political sway aesthetics uh, and and just sensibilities job types so you really do get a broad spectrum um of shop types, but also people come and comment on it. And so, these this project once you had that kind of completed, and that did that mm. become like a sort of a calling card for you? You want more work off the back of that, or were you still doing the more you know the roots of kind of uh, competition entries? Because mm. I know that you've done a lot of interesting sort of public artworks, which mm. are kind of you know they're fascinating conversation pieces, right in the centre of you know of, mm. of of towns in boroughs across London. Yeah, so that's absolutely right. We didn't mean to pick this um, entry point into becoming businessmen in architecture or mm. business people um, or designers. This We didn't mean for that, that to be our entry niche, but that's what happens. We, we did well at these high street regeneration projects. That it kind of snowballed where we won more projects, larger projects with the ca- local council presumably because they were reasonably happy with the work that we were doing. And it started to become more permanent. So um, for the same, for Walthamstow, we designed a, a essentially a cinema signpost mm. um, in their town centre, but also became a marker um, as a rear projection, uh, a rear lit white cube on core 10 tripod legs, really quite tall. Um, it looks a bit like an alien spaceship that came and landed in. And it, I think it's because of this installation type um, 
portfolio that we were starting to grow that we were able to enter competitions, for example, with the Museum of London, where they uh, we, we entered that along with Noi Architects. We collaborated with them as designers, right, Matt Tender, okay. and um, who we share workspace with. Yeah. So we share a lot of conversations about business and design. Um, yeah, so our portfolio looked really strong, I believe, to them, and our language was there. We knew how to make things, because we were having to to make things with these small budgets mm. um, up in Walthamstow. I think that transferred into, that knowledge transferred into the tender process. Uh, and um, and we were able to talk with fabricators quite a lot, because instead, unlike normal architect, well, um, building architecture, where you've got contractors and everything's quite permanent fabricator can be used in these more temporary situations so yeah um that kind of that is one thread of our business but if we were to keep on at that i think we might um we might have had to take a huge uh i don't know maybe a pause in our business for a while while we tried to work out how to continuous stream or grow this amount they didn't pay quite a lot and it also we were quite aware that a lot of our experience in private residential design and other parts of architectural design were not necessarily going to waste but the the profit that we could be making with those and the experience we could be developing especially with client relationships mm. um wasn't happening through the installation type work. Yeah. So almost the whole time that we've been doing installation work, we've also had a stream of private residential. And now what it's kind of interesting what's happening now is we're we're identifying the private residential as our core business market. Yeah. And we're trying to find either consciously or subconsciously we're trying to find a bit of that installation coming into private residential i think we you know we don't want to waste any of this experience um and that's a hard thing to do because you have to you have to marry a good salesperson technique along with yeah. the right clients um oh, this is what i've always been i always enjoyed talking with you because you've got very good um aptitude for understanding how to be a salesperson, how to communicate to the language of a client and how to sort of make your ideas, your architectural ideas palatable and something that's kind of digestible, which, you know, is perceived as something very valuable for, for your clients. How have you gone about doing that? What, what sorts of... Hmm. Um... There's many different client types, aren't there? You know, you can't... Um, you, and there's many different people who are stakeholders who somehow feel like clients but are not your client. Mm. Um, and so you, you have to have these different type of respect and... Um, these combinations of respect and empathy and like you say I think there's a certain amount of navigating the language used with different types of people mm. and different types of enthusiasm I, I think everyone could recognize that if you have a, a corporate client stakeholder who's a project manager for many years 
they're not going to they're going to feel patronized if you try and teach them walk them through a project i say teach it wasn't a slip i think that's kind of what you do with private residential clients who have no experience in architecture yeah and exactly yeah there's there's the element of edu- educating the client which kind of massive education element and uh, you know i've had a lot of conversations with other business owners architect business owners and a lot of people say that that like it's that very thing that drains quite a lot of the profit <laughs> from the business because you're you're dealing with anxieties i mean major anxieties with private residential clients um not not all of them but Often, especially with the, the more modest projects that we do where, you know, £100,000 is the absolute limit that they could ever raise. And there being, I'm there to arrive at the realisation that that maybe only gets them their loft and, and not the basement that they were hoping for. <laughs> of course not, but you have to somehow get them enthused nonetheless. Yeah. So the I guess my point is... I'm I'm much more. It's probably not good for me, but I'm much more interested in trying to find clever ways of helping the private residential clients get in, teach them what they need to know, in order for them to enjoy the process mm. and drop the anxiety, um, and of course, like shape their expectations in as sympathetic a way as possible yeah because it can be rather jarring and disappointing to whenever well you know the people's hopes are usually higher than the reality that the the money allows them to achieve so yeah um that's in that's in terms of size but and of how, course and how, quality. And how do you go about educating your clients do you, you do that through sort of printed literature material mm. is it just a question of the relationship that you're cultivating mm. With them, well, or, we, we've had or a, is it something that you do before they even become your client? Like you have sort of educational material put out there. Um, I don't want to show all my cards, Ryan, but <laughs> they, you and I, you and I have had a couple of conversations about this, and I'm I'm really interested actually in how you are developing a a sort of rapport with your clients, and it's not. It's not. In some ways, this kind of feels like it's a discussion about manipulation, but it really is about preparation. Mm. Um, with my clients, Stephen and I um, are slowly building up a library of literature. So one of the things is we found examples in books that have analysed um, cl- past typical projects of similar nature. Let's say someone's house extension, what have you. Very modest. And there's a pie chart that breaks down where the costs lie. And so this pie chart is so important to us because it shows that a printed literature, we're not making this up to the client. The client knows that this is beyond us. Yeah. And we're showing them and it says that the construction budget, which they thought was their total budget um, in some way, some shape and form, is maybe a third of the graph. Then you have about a quarter of the graph is the VAT, the value-added tax. And then the rest of it is loose furniture design, fees, um, and so on. You know, it just gets nibbled away. Uh, mm. and, and so one of the first things that we try and do, I mean, th- I'm talking about managing expectations, is yeah. 
we're trying to say to them the no, the numbers you've been thinking about you need to loosen up that that that's not set in stone and you need to you probably need to clip your ideas about what you can achieve with this number and we're not saying these words but we're showing them a graph that kind of gently lets them come to that realization because we don't ask at this point we're not asking them what their budget is although we might have at this stage then another thing that we do because two, two of the big things are time and money so we looked at the money to some extent and then we look at time and we've got a similar printed timeline of a typical project that is atypical let's be honest just like the pie graph was atypical but yeah. there is still um, an external source provided to the client that shows that their timeline is ve- is actually rather long. The, so you've got a, a bar chart, if you like, a stack bar chart, and then if you look at it, it says that it's only the second half or the, the last third is the construction phase, and the rest of it above it is design phase. And, you know, that is a big uh, reality <laughs> nugget for a client to chew on. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, this idea that, um, well, we can't go on site next week. You know, that's the that's the sort of the dream. And even some corporate clients or public clients have to be managed like that. Although, generally speaking, they've got experience in managing and in, in, in knowing how to build in contingencies and times. Yeah. So, there's two examples. And And how do you... And how do those, how do clients find you? So that's kind of explaining how you nurture the relationship. I'm imagining those kinds of materials you give out to prospective clients, or you give out to people that have already you know you've got an, a formal contract with. But how do people enter into those agreements with you in the first? How do people find you? How do you mm-hmm. how do you sort of cast your net? Or how have you been how have you been doing that? Well, um, in, the, in the sort of private residential world because it seems quite different from the competition strategies we have i think i'm getting from all my conversations that i'm having with other business leaders leaders different business people who've Mm. got their own architecture practice and private residential i'm finding everyone's got a different story yeah um but the common element is referrals and for us that is very strong with um for example, we did a, a very small, very small extension um, for a home up in Walthamstow. <clears throat> we didn't carry it through into construction, but we got it to the stage where the contractor could build it. And the client was just so happy, even though this was perhaps one of our most modest projects, the client was so happy that she, without our awareness, she went and um, said nice things to other clients. Uh, to her friends and their friends then but spoke to other friends and they came back to us where some other people wanted work with us simply on the basis of the happiness yeah, yeah. of that one client. And in some ways that tells a really sharp story about what what makes for a a good referral is you know, very simply a happy client. Yeah. Know? Yeah, the sum at the end of the day, what is the net uh, emotional response a client has and that should be protected I think architects mm-hmm. should you know take take their head out of their arse sometimes and really just kind of yeah, <laughs> protect yeah totally do you, do you ever have a system in place where you kind of formally ask clients for referrals or you have that as part of a sort of mm. strategic part of a conversation 
because often I know I know for myself I when I first started practice <clears throat> I just kind of let referrals happen now I have more of a system in place where I monthly communicate with clients my existing client base through through videos or through a telephone conversation where I actually just formally ask here's the you know how can I help other people like you you've been one of my mm. sort of most prized clients I want I want more well that's right yeah and um, we I mean, we don't have formal systems in place yet, although we're aware that that would probably be a good idea. Yeah. The um, the f- formality that we've had in the past has been to expect... You've got to target your clients. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that every single one of our clients are people who would want to have referrals from and I don't mean that in a, a terrible way it's just that I'm trying to shape a business yeah, with my yeah. business partner and we there's some projects we do that we wish were bigger or that had uh, more financial clout behind it and so on so you target your client you ask for more um, you, you you let them know that you've got space coming up or that you're you're available to do more work and see if you can find the positives in the in the project that they're happy to probably propagate, but we haven't been pushing that too hard, no, Ryan, cool. recently. A um, couple of things I wanted to talk about with you. One is to ask you the question of what have been your sort of the, the biggest obstacles that you've faced in the last few years of running a business and how you've resolved them or resolving them. And the other is I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, you've always been one of these people in the architectural scene in the, in London particularly where you've been at the you know you've been at the beginning of of a, lots of events you know you've created mm. events you've created mm. um architectural magazines like Matt Scene which you produced um and it was a very good way of sort of disseminating your sort of take on things but also being like a you know the beginnings of being an industry leader and how has that kind of come through into your business and it's, is it something that you still you still you still do or um uh, highly flattering Brian. <laughs> highly flattering um no you're right so but it is it's true because i always think of like you know you, you might not have realized it but actually mm. yeah putting those putting those events on and mm. you know you've got 100 people there all from you know it, it's suddenly like wow you know and it's inspiring the, these things are like Exercise. They make you feel really good when mm. when you're doing them. You know their value, but you need you need to keep on doing them. So, Matzine, um, the small architectural magazine, amongst me and my um, me and people that we know, it's open to the public to contribute to. Although it's on a bit of a hiatus just now, we're in the process of making what is effectively a, a Matzine in the office um, f- for potentially clients, but maybe it's about Maybe it's about talking between the employees. There's only three of us, but um, sometimes you got to share your your inner thoughts that you can't express at work. Mm. Um, your the the designs that you're exploring or what have you. Um, but it also shows the client a bit like um, you were, we were speaking earlier about we made that and how they make a, a newspaper. Yeah, um, and they disseminate that around their local area in Whitechapel. We we have a similar desire to, to do that in our local area but, or maybe just with our contacts 
Um, the other thing is really just like getting people in a room that might not normally do that. So um, we used to have these nights that were very similar to Pecha Kucha. I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know what that is. Yeah. Um, but where we'd just get the local designers in proximity and invite them to our studio, get a screen and just invite maybe two or three of them to give a talk, have some drinks. And all of a sudden you 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 know about the rendering firm that are just down the corridor that are run by architects and you're like, but they you know, they've kind of changed cloaks. But you know, they're they're business people as well and they're um fascinating stories and they're working with big architects and or you, you find illustrators and so on. It's it's really diverse and I think that's part of the key. It's always about breaking out of your frame of mind and trying to enrich your your practice at the same time. So they're they're to they're to keep happening, but uh, they've been slow at the minute. So those types of things, um, I uh, I can't think of anything else at the minute. Cool. And the other question was about your the biggest sort of obstacles and challenges that you faced running a business and how you've overcome them. Ooh, that's a tough one. That's in danger of getting too deep, Brian, um, <laughs> if, we, if we go down that too heavily. But I would say that what's in common with a lot of people who start practices is this discussion of strain, of a type of emotional strain. And part of it's doubt and the, like the questioning of the foundations of what you're doing, yeah. especially whenever um, relationships are afraid or work is slow to come in or you or there's a puzzle in front of you and you feel like you've tried every angle to solve it mm. and you feel like the last opportunity to solve it is by folding it and putting it in a box and, yeah. and running away from that box maybe setting the box on fire <laughs> and so i think the i'd say for me um trying to trying to find what it was that I loved about university study and aesthetics and the, the study of experience of space, like naturally that, you know, I think a lot of us, maybe a lot of us who bloomed when we were doing our master's, I think many architect or your know, master's degree or diploma or whatever mm. you, the equivalent is in America. Um, whenever you bloom in that, sometimes Kind of well for me, I want to hold on to. I want to remember what it was that really opened my eyes to design, and I'm finding it difficult, or I find it difficult to sell that, or like um, to to make that in something that our practice could use. One of the dent problems of that is it's very me, and it's not us, you know. And there's yeah. a, there's a problem between when you work with a um, another architect as well maybe it's the same with being your own architect you don't feel like the company should take on your your aesthetics too heavily that sounds nonsense mm. but it's very difficult to find a, a homogenous or a, um, a sort of halfway house aesthetic sometimes and and for me you know on a on a non-trivial level that's been that's been a difficult thing the question is do I need the company to they exhibit my deep interests or is this a business 
opportunity that it can be independent of that. But and then mm. if it if it's the latter, I have to ask myself: is is that satisfying? Yeah, well, that 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 is you know that is an obstacle, and that's the conflict. I mean, I've dealt with that myself. It's this kind of constantly wanting to you know express my own sort of niche ideas mm. but then also how to communicate that to a marketplace mm. and also if if there was someone else you know if you're working with a team how everyone creates the same unified vision mm. together and obviously when you you know as you're as you're developing ideas are are, are changing and you're getting deeper into what it is that you mm. that you want to do and how to yeah but i think i think i'm finding like all of these things, um, you know, when you you stop the stress and you walk away from it, I think some some of the solutions come to the foreground. And I think I've I think I've answered this question myself, and it's just at the stage of get on and do it. The answer is be the salesperson. And that sounds like a horrible thing for an architect to kind of say when, especially when we're talking about like artistic in endeavor. But I, I think you need to find a way of selling it to not just clients of course like especially clients but to you just sell it to your colleagues yeah you just sell it to other architects totally because that's your test market in yeah, some yeah. way um to i mean some i think degree. you've hit the nail on the head there i mean that that's the conflict that we i mean certainly as an architect as a business person that we never want to identify as being salesperson mm. but actually being a salesperson is the fundamental skill of being an architect. It's just that we have to redefine what it means to be a salesperson, right? We've mm. got this sort of negative imagery of a salesperson being a cold calling somebody <laughs> trying to flog you, um, you know, mops at your door or whatever. Yeah. But actually, salesmanship is about communication. It's about articulating your own ideas and mm. also pinpointing your interests and passions into the needs of, of, of your market. And also, every conversation we're having is a form of sales you know, with our own teams, with our clients, with our, you know, with the consultants that we're working with, with the planning department. There mm. is this element of salesmanship mm. that goes with it. And it is the sort of the key, the key ingredient. Well, that's right. You can't just be, I guess this it's a can of worms, isn't it? Because you can't just be the salesperson at the end of the day to know the marketability of the thing that you're selling. It requires... It requires a bit of stepping back and mm. a bit of observation, working out what triggers attraction and happiness in people, and you know, and trying to communicate with that language, and and I think that's where the that's where the trick lies. It's if you have a difficult idea, you know it's got value. You need to find out how other people communicate. And communicate in their terms, mm. and it's very—it's kind of humbling in a way because you have to say, "Well, you, you know, the way that you've been talking about this is kind of all upside down and inside out." Uh, there might be something in the idea, but it's—it's it's not on your terms. And so, yeah, there's something interesting about that. Um, you've got to really submit to other people's way of seeing things or a common way of seeing things or specific ways of seeing things. And I think that, that makes a good salesperson. Yeah, totally. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Sean. It's always an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Mm. I look forward to seeing you. Thank you. Passionate things that you're Thank you, Ryan. 
And that is a wrap. Thank you for listening today. If you're looking for more time, freedom, impact, and income as an architect, get instant access to my free four-part architect profit map by visiting freearchitectgift.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by AIA Advantage partner BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software designed specifically for architects. It helps you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. So whether you're working remotely or on-site, ArchiOffice allows you to monitor the status of your projects and tasks and send out invoices in an accurate and timely manner. Get your fully functional 15-day trial of ArchiOffice by going to businessofarchitecture.com forward slash demo. The views expressed on the show by my guests do not represent those of the host, and I make no representation, promise, guarantee, pledge, warranty, contract, bond, or commitment except to help you conquer the world.